Hi, this is Dr. Ishan Sharma, and you're listening to The Recovery Refresh. Thanks for tuning in. In this episode, I wanted to share with you what your doctor doesn't know about addiction. This episode is all about everything that your doctor was not taught in medical school or in the residency training. How do I know this? I graduated from a Canadian medical school in June of 2019 and from a Canadian family medicine residency program in June of 2021. Contrary to popular belief, there is a lot of neurobiology research that has made great contributions to our understanding of addiction. So much so, we have a scientifically supported definition of addiction. Unfortunately, however, due to medical politics and the way that medical education is structured, the vast majority of doctors have no idea it even exists. Specifically, at least in North America, when it comes to medical education regarding addiction, it is dominated by psychiatry. As a result, the teaching is presented from a psychiatric lens, which is reliant upon the DSM, or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders. In fact, psychiatry doesn't even use the term addiction, but rather, quote-unquote, substance use disorder. At no point in my training did any lecturer or small group instructor discuss the neurobiology of addiction or any of what I will share with you today. And if that wasn't concerning enough, further to this, through many of the physicians and patients I worked with, from settings including family practice clinics to mental health clinics, hospital wards, emergency departments, and elsewhere, I heard so many variations of myths about addiction. That addiction is a choice. That addiction is a form of self-medication. That addiction is just wanting to get high. That addiction is something that can be controlled with willpower. Or that addiction is caused by trauma. So without further ado, let's jump into what your doctor doesn't know about addiction. So on my screen here, you can see the American Society of Addiction Medicine short definition of addiction. And this was something that was put out back in 2011. And as an aside, it's unfortunate, but the American Society or ASAM has since uh, reverted and uh, taken a, a great step backward as in 2019, they they modified their definition of addiction and it's just um, a collection of words that really don't say much compared to this definition here. So I'm going to read out the definition of addiction in its entirety and then I'll, I'll go through it line by line. Addiction is a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. Dysfunction in these circuits leads to characteristic biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations. This is reflected in an individual pathologically pursuing reward and or relief by substance use and other behaviors. Addiction is characterized by inability to consistently abstain, impairment in behavioral control, craving, 
diminished recognition of significant problems with one's behaviors and interpersonal relationships, and a dysfunctional emotional response. Like other chronic diseases, addiction often involves cycles of relapse and remission. Without treatment or engagement in recovery activities, addiction is progressive and can result in disability or premature death. So that is the 2011 American Society of Addiction Medicine definition of addiction. So I'll go through this line by line and and sort of break down exactly what all this means and why it's so significant. So this first line, addiction is a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. So what this is saying is when we say addiction is a primary disease, it means that it's not caused by anything else. So more specifically, there's a genetic predisposition that someone is born with that leaves them vulnerable to developing addiction. And we know from from research that the heritability or the genetic component of addiction is at least 50 or 60%. So basically, in saying that it's a primary disease, it's not caused by anything else. It's something that you're largely born with. You're born with this genetic predisposition that leaves you with this innate or built-in vulnerability to addiction. And here, it's a chronic disease. So that means it's lifelong. It's not something that comes and goes. It's not something that is curable. But it's a lifelong disease. And one of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. So this is uh, basically alluding to the specific areas of the brain that are, are implicated in addiction and whose function becomes disordered. So here, this next sentence, dysfunction in these circuits leads to characteristic biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations. So when there's dysfunction in these areas of the brain in someone who is living with addiction, we're going to see certain manifestations of that or a certain expression of that um, biologically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. So biologically, you know, if we were to look at the brain of someone living with addiction and look at the brain of someone uh, who isn't living in addiction and we're to use advanced imaging and sort of look at how the structures that are implicated in addiction function in each of those two people, you'll actually see differences in the way that the brain of someone living with addiction functions. So that's an example of you know, the biological side of things. With regards to the psychological side of things, I won't spend a lot of time on this topic today, but a huge, major, major, major component of addiction is that of shame. People living in addiction are incredibly burdened with and incredibly full of shame. And that's a big, big driver of the disease. And then with regards to the social side of things, uh, uh, that's largely self-explanatory. Of course, there's going to be a lot of disarray and, and dysfunction in one's 
uh, interpersonal relationships. And then with regards to the spiritual side of things, so this is something that is worth taking a bit of time to, to flesh out a little more. So obviously in Western medicine, it's interesting, we, we only really talk about spirituality in two contexts, in my experience. One is palliative medicine, so end-of-life care, and the other one is addiction medicine. So when, when we use the term spiritual in this context, it, it doesn't necessarily mean God. You know, it might mean that for some people, but really what the spiritual manifestation components definition is, a, is alluding to is the idea that there's a loss of connection to self, there's a loss of connection to others, to a sense of community, to a sense of belonging, and that, you know, there, there can be a, a loss of, of connection to, you know, that which is beyond our, our own control, beyond our own sphere of influence, and, and might also signify, you know, a lack of connection to a higher power, whether that's the universe, whether that's God, or whatever other individual understanding that someone may have. And moving on to this next line here, this is reflected in an individual pathologically pursuing roared and or relief by substance use and other behaviors. So basically what this is saying is that someone who's living with addiction is, despite negative consequences, uh, continuing to pursue certain behaviors or the use of certain uh, substances as a means of pursuing reward, which you can think of as an elevation of one's mood state, and or relief, which you can think of as the removal of a negative mood state. So one is you're trying to increase your mood. The other one is you're just trying to get away from a really, uh, a really unpleasant or dysphoric mood state. And then another thing that isn't uh, sort of written in this particular version of the definition, but um, you can also include the the idea of escape in this uh, in this line here. So pursuing reward, relief, or escape, basically escape being you know a means of of avoidance. And looking at this next paragraph here, this next line here is really key. These five uh, characteristics that are listed here can basically be summarized as the A, B, C, D, and E criteria or characteristics of addiction. So this is really important. I find this way of characterizing it and understanding it to be way more accessible and tangible than, you know, the 11-point checklist type approach that the DSM takes in, in the substance use disorder and addictive behaviors chapter of the, of the manual. So here, um, you know, the A uh, characteristic is the inability to consistently abstain. You know, people just can't stay away from, you know, whatever behavior or a substance that it might be that um, is their active manifestation of the disease. And then the B criteria or characteristic is 
and impairment in behavioral control. So that's where, despite not wanting to to use certain substances, despite not wanting to partake in certain behaviors, they're just not able to 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 do so. You know, there there's a lot of impulsivity. There there might be this sort of element of compulsion. Um, you know, that one feels like they're they're not sort of in the driver's seat. They almost feel like they're being whisked away by some sort of force. And then the next criteria or characteristic there is craving. Pretty self-explanatory. It's a lot of preoccupation with using a substance or engaging in a behavior. The D criteria or characteristic here is a diminished recognition of significant problems with one's behaviors and interpersonal relationships. So, you know, this is uh, something where basically the brain of someone who is living with addiction has dysfunction present in certain areas in the brain that actually make it incredibly difficult for them to have insight into their own problematic behavior as well as issues with dysfunctional interpersonal relationships that they may have. And then this last point here, the E characteristic, is a dysfunctional emotional response. So this is where someone who's living with addiction, just the way that their brain is working, you might observe things that are fairly minor that really aren't a big deal can actually be incredibly triggering for them and set them off. And and they might overreact quite quite dramatically. What you also might find is that the opposite might be true. They might, something that might be really terrible, that might be really impactful and significant in their life occurs and, you know, they couldn't be less bothered. And it's really, you know, a lot of minimization that might be going on rather than catastrophization as discussed earlier. And then the other way to sort of add more context to this point is there's just this undercurrent of unmanageability in their life. And, you know, the the sort of normal ups and downs of life just seem to to be incredibly unmanageable for them. And then this next sentence here, like other chronic diseases, addiction often involves cycles of relapse and remission. So absolutely, it's a chronic lifelong disease and it involves cycles of relapse and remission. So it's likely that relapse will occur and that's okay because it's really just about continuing to be engaged in recovery activities and it's really about progress, not perfection. And that's where it can be incredibly daunting for people living with addiction as well to sort of have the thought of, oh, I need to let go of this substance use or this behavior that's become problematic forever. But really, it's just a matter of for today. We all have the same 24 hours in every day. And we all have to live life one day at a time. So relapse is likely. And then remission. So we can't cure it we can have it better managed. In this last sentence here, without treatment or engagement in recovery activities, addiction is progressive and can result in disability or premature death. So absolutely, without treatment or regular ongoing participation in recovery activities, it's pretty obvious what that's going to result in. It's just going to result in, if you're not engaged in recovery, then 
you're going to be involved in active use and and that rarely ends happily for for the person living with addiction and addiction is progressive so it's always there always there just kind of lurking in the shadows just waiting and it's really insidious actually and it's amazing how the brain of someone living with addiction will spare no expense to try and justify, rationalize, minimize, catastrophize, to try and convince someone who's living with addiction to continue to use or to continue to engage in a particular behavioral manifestation of addiction. And addiction does, you know, if of course left unchecked, it it does tend to escalate. And then finally here, you know, the idea that if someone's not engaged in recovery, this can result in disability or premature death. Once again, pretty self-explanatory. Disability, just to kind of make that more concrete, if someone's using and they suffer respiratory depression due to opioid intoxication, so they've used opioids and they're out of it and their breathing stops or becomes interrupted, they can suffer a lack of oxygen to the brain and then the brain gets damaged and that can leave them with deficits in their mental functioning moving forward. Or, you know, someone who has chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD, which is largely linked to long-term smoking, then, you know, they might have to be reliant upon home oxygen and have to wheel around an oxygen canister wherever they go. And then the premature death side of things Of course, there's no shortage of overdose-related deaths. You know, the premature death can also happen due to incredible amounts of organ damage. So in someone who is a very heavy drinker and, you know, for a chronic sort of long period of time is engaging in excessive intake of alcohol leading to liver failure, that's a pretty serious thing. And once your liver gets damaged enough, then that's going to have downstream effects and affect some of your other organs like your your kidneys. And then you're putting so much strain on your body. It's a very sad, a sad thing, but I've absolutely seen people who have passed away quite young, you know, in their 30s or 40s due to the sequelae or the, the sort of physical consequences of addiction. So that's the American Society of Addiction Medicine, 2011, short definition of addiction. And what I'm going to do now is just kind of highlight a few things about that definition that I find really important. So just wanted to return to a point that I made earlier that when you understand that addiction is a disease of the brain, and that is largely due to genetic predisposition, like I mentioned, of at least 50 or 60%, and its subsequent interaction with the environment, you know, the exposure to substance, to stress, to the people, places, and things that surround us, then you understand that addiction is not a choice. It is a primarily genetic issue that leads to an innate vulnerability of the brain of that individual to developing florid addiction under the right environmental circumstances as discussed previously. And this is where it's a common oversimplification and misconception that trauma causes addiction. So trauma does not cause addiction, but is one of many influential exacerbating factors. 
and without that underlying genetic predisposition and innate vulnerability within the brain of someone who is at risk of addiction, trauma alone will not lead to the development of addiction. And so ultimately what what all this means is that when it comes to addiction treatment, psychoeducation, or what we tell the lay public, when it, what, what we tell healthcare providers, what we tell patients who are being treated for addiction, needs to be focused such that those living with addiction understand the following. Number one, addiction is a brain disease. Number two, addiction is not caused by anything else. You're born with a genetic predisposition that leaves you with an innate, built-in vulnerability to addiction. Number three, addiction is a chronic, lifelong disease that can achieve remission but not cure and is susceptible to relapse. Number four, addiction is not a choice or moral failure. And number five, holistic recovery needs to be emphasized where attention is given to the reduction, if not abstinence, of all potential manifestations of addiction. And I say all potential manifestations of addiction in order to include substances as well as behaviors. So that's the 2011 American Society of Addiction Medicine definition of addiction. This is the paradigm and model of understanding addiction that I find to be the most sensible, the most scientific, and the most beneficial in terms of my own clinical experience and in terms of patient outcomes. So that concludes this episode of The Recovery Refresh. As always, you can feel free to reach out and connect with me via Instagram at Ishan Sharma MD. Feel free to send me any comments, topic suggestions, requests, questions, or even just to connect. Thank you.